Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Just a quick heads up team, we will be discussing mental health challenges throughout this episode. Thanks so much for joining us all again. My name's Amelia and I'm very excited to introduce you to our guest on the show today. We have Dr. Chantel, who is a veterinarian who works in industry. Welcome to the show, Chantel. Hey, hey Amelia, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just watching the cats zoom around the house. So, you know, it's another happy day working from home for the millionth week in a row. (laughs) That sounds like a very appropriate thing for a vet to be doing. (laughs) Uh, yes, exactly. I, um, I'm very fortunate to, to get to spend more time with my pets instead of less. So, um, it, you know, silver linings. <laughs> I'm going to break from the script here and ask a very quick question. Do you think your cats prefer you being at home? Or do you think they'd prefer you're at work? Oh, now you're peaking my behaviorist. I hope we have time for this answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have two cats. I have two cats with very different personalities. One is an adventurer and he's an extrovert, and he loves anything and everything that is unfamiliar. And my other one, she's an introvert, and she's very much a homebody. So one of them loves us being home more, and I'm actually going to need to adjust my return to the workplace quite specifically for her. And my other one, I'm sure he can't wait to be rid of me. So the answer is yes and no. So just like people, it's not clear cut. It's not just like, it's because it's a cat. It's because of the individual. It's the individual all the way. Yep. Some people like hugs. Some people don't. Cats are exactly the same. Awesome. Explain so much about the universe. Already, already (laughs) dropping like truth bombs. Okay. So what is your job? Well, I'm a veterinarian. So for about the first 10 years after graduating, I worked in clinical practice. That means I'm a vet in a clinic. And when you graduate, you have all this knowledge and very little experience and your career can change in ways that you would never picture as you're going through your vet degree. When I graduated, I was going to be a mixed practice vet. That meant that I would see dogs, cats, rabbits, birds, and also probably sheep, cattle and horses. However, there weren't many dairy cattle positions available when I graduated and I was keen to stay near my partner, now husband, and support network. So initially took a mixed practice job in Bendigo, which was with the most amazing and supportive team that I could have hoped for and still consider them family. But unfortunately, the distance and pressures of being a new grad, that really kind of wore me down. So after only six months, I made the really difficult decision to return to Melbourne for work with the full support and blessing of my colleagues at the time. And to my surprise and to many new grads' surprise when I tell them this story, it took no time at all to find work with just a little bit of experience under my belt. And over the next eight years, I built those skills and experience within some really amazing clinics alongside some really talented consultants and specialists in metropolitan Melbourne. And as you start to go through your career, you start to find passions and start to hone in on sort of more narrower fields. Some vets can find, not every vet finds that. Thinking back to my days at uni, I'm surprised as anyone to learn my obsession became behaviour medicine or mental wellbeing of pets and stress minimisation. And then as well as feline medicine, and I don't think I could have got further from cattle, dairy cattle work. Um, (laughs) 
if I if I thought, yeah. <laughs> um, which then leads me to my current job, which since the start of the year, I work in industry. I work for Royal Cannon as one of four scientific services vets in Australia and New Zealand. It's a corporate role and my days are very different, but it pulls on all the skills that I built in clinical practice. One of my favorite parts of my new role is I get to improve the lives of cats and dogs on a much larger scale than the immediate circumference of the clinic that I'm working at, but particularly, you know, educating vets and pet owners about cat behavior and well-being and, and making a better world for cats. And I get to do that every day. And that makes me very happy. <laughs> Fantastic. Congratulations for finding yourself in such an awesome position. Yes, I'm so fortunate. I I'm, I really have a lot of gratitude for, for where I'm at in my life right now. And if you had have told me 12 months ago that this is where I would be, I would not believe you at all. <laughs> I love how quickly things can change. Can you tell us a little bit about what day-to-day work looks like bearing in mind that obviously this year could be a little bit different yeah I will speak to both clinical and industry if you don't mind I think a lot of people have curiosities about both clinical practice no two days are the same you're often running the clock so you're constantly clock watching nearly always behind you know every 10 to 20 minutes it's a new challenge a new consult a new problem medical problem or surgical problem that's presented to you that may be in the form of like consultations. So that could be, you know, a health checkup for a healthy pet, you know, needing their annual vaccinations and, and health exam. Or, you know, it might be a sick pet that's presenting for a particular condition, as well as most practice, most general practice vets will do soft tissue surgery and dental work. As a requirement for registration, it's compulsory for vets to complete ongoing professional education in order to maintain a minimum standard. So I loved sharing what I learned. And so I would be actively involved in staff education, sharing that knowledge with other vets, nurses and reception staff. And I think that's what sort of grew my passion as well for low stress handling was it's not a very common or well-known concept in many vet clinics. So it was something that I really, yeah, that I developed a lot of understanding and kind of obsession in and any chance that I had to share that knowledge, I was under it <laughs> so it was something that uh some people kind of yeah learned to I guess harness and I ended up being able to present that information to leadership team for a, a national corporate veterinary group to the leader leadership team of their Victorian clinics like that's pretty exciting and I think that's one of the, one of the highlights of my career I'd have to say was having a bunch of head vets listen to what I had to say and yeah making a difference because then I got notifications like the very next week oh we've changed this thing we've started using this thing and I knew that that would directly impact and improve the welfare of their patients the emotional well-being of their patients and that's all I ever want to do (laughs) that's amazing that's that's really really cool yeah so that's something that I was doing day in day out at a vet practice when I was a clinical vet and you know I'd, I'd sort of have reputation amongst my colleagues oh if you've got difficult patients, patients that are difficult to handle, um, send them to Chantel, you know, she'll be able to, you know, work her manage, magic with them. And, and then we can get the diagnostic tests that we need. And to some extent, my current role in industry is very similar. I spend a large proportion of my job educating still. So vets in the team inform across nearly all the projects and events in our market. So you know, from a marketing team to the supply team to, you know, the the reps who are out in the field, we're 
answering questions, we're leveraging our knowledge, we're sharing our knowledge with the rest of the associates that we get to work alongside. Um, but possibly I'm using my vet degree in a bit more of a creative and diverse way than just thinking of things clinically, which is really cool as well, because I'm a little bit artsy. So I get to enjoy all of that too. <laughs> that's, that's so awesome. So what, what do you actually do at the moment? So for example, today I've come back from annual leave and I get to answer a lot of emails. Emails are a big part of my role now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they, they are, but they're a big part of everyone's role. <laughs> <laughs> I never used to answer so many emails as a clinical vet. Clinical vets can be, and I used to be, relatively devoid of technology other than what I needed tasks in a consult room. Switching to industry where everything was digital and then working from home was just I have, um, I have a confession to make. I'm, I'm secretly 97 years old and my nickname is Nana Shan at work. So there's, you know, a lot of technological uh, challenges that I face that your normal person wouldn't find too challenging. <laughs> but um, sorry, that aside. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's lots of communication across different, different segments of our um, business and then I do a lot of internal and external communication in the form of like presentations and trainings and things like that. Just before now, I've just come off a call um, speaking to up to 30 associates on a particular on a particular diet that was for a therapeutic need. Yeah. And I really love that too. So ordinarily, there would be a lot of face-to-face. -face. <laughs> so I'd be doing a lot of travel. I'd be speaking at conferences. Um, I'd be you know, maintaining the brand, answering questions, traveling conference season. But obviously this year that that hasn't happened. And I think in a way that's been a little bit of a blessing because there's been, it's, it's a big adjustment going from clinical veterinary to industry veterinary. And it's allowed me to really focus on those non-travel, non-social aspects of the role and, and become really proficient and confident in those differences before then hopefully soon being able to go out and speak to that in person and pull on all of my public speaking and I guess performance type skills that I developed as a as a young debater from year seven gosh how many decades ago was that <laughs> don't think about it yep and then I got to flex and build that muscle again um, when I became a part-time group fitness instructor probably at about the halfway mark after graduating from vet school just to find a bit more balance and passion outside of work. It can be really hard to become so wrapped up in the identity of being a vet because so many people that become vets are so passionate about what they do that it can be a little bit consuming. I found that for me personally, that wasn't the best for my mental health and to commit to studying and becoming an accredited group fitness instructor meant that I had a responsibility to a group of people outside of my work to take my mind off work, which worked beautifully for me until I started to try and overachieve at that too. <laughs> Always a danger. But I digress. Always a danger, yes. Um, but no, I found that extremely fulfilling and it was only, only through injury that I've had to partly give it up for a time. But I am very much looking forward to returning to group fitness instructing because there's nothing like it as well. Yeah, it'll be great to return to some more social activities when we're permitted to and yeah, use use these skills in two completely different industries, you know, fitness versus 
um, veterinary, but they go so well hand in hand. Which is so cool. And it just shows like how valuable transferable skills are and how they can be hidden in all sorts of places. Absolutely. This role that I applied for, which was kind of by accident, really, I wasn't looking for a new role. I was actually quite happy in the clinic that I was at, but this is sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity for this type of role. And I went, well, what's the worst that can happen? My situation stays the same and that's perfectly okay with me. But I think it was things like, you know, the group fitness instructing that meant that I was going to be a good candidate to get up in front of a whole lecture theatre full of vets and speak to them about our product. And that's a very valuable skill. And I never even thought of it that way until the interview. And it was just basically me, you know, I didn't have to, it wasn't a long list of qualifications that I had. It was, you know, just, just me and my life. And it was suited to that role. And that was going to be so mutually beneficial. Neither of us had to really twist or try to force anything to make the employment happen. And I think that's sometimes when it's the easiest is when you know that it's right. Yeah, definitely. Are you doing any research at the moment as part of your role? I don't actually, no. But we do have across the business, there's 500 veterinarians and of those, sorry, that's globally, 500 veterinarians globally in our research and development centres and on campus, we have, I think it's about six board certified veterinary nutritional specialists and quite a few residents as well. So they do research and development in pet nutrition in conjunction and, and in collaboration with Waltham. So they're um, a organisation in the United Kingdom that do a lot of research in pet nutrition. And yeah, we, you know, there's a lot of universities and nutritionists across the world that we collaborate with as well. But that's not me. <laughs> My job is to take the studies, understand what what the nutrition nerds have done. (laughs) And my job is to help translate that for people who need to understand it. So I translate it to marketing to know what they can and what they really can and can't claim about the study to the reps so that they can then um, become educated about the study and speak to the vets in clinics that they're going to visit, things like that. So cool. And it's also like a whole world I have never thought about. It's wonderful. <laughs> it, it is a much bigger world than even I gave it credit for. I had the fortune in, t- again, your career takes you places you never thought it could. In 2015, as a practicing vet, I was afforded the opportunity to go visit a pet nutrition center in Kansas, in America. And I got to see this therapeutic pet companies factory I got to walk the factory floor uh, only certain sections of course because you know hygiene but I got to see firsthand the amazing level and quality to which this product was produced that it was a it was a no-brainer at the end of the day when I knew that I would be going into that level of the industry even though as a veterinarian I knew that these companies that produce therapeutic diets are way above standard. Um, It was nice to go and witness that and see that myself. So yeah, so then when the role came up where I am now for, and it's with a therapeutic pet company, I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's, that's going to be that quality reassurance and things. And even though hopefully a, a trip to campus will be on the cards in the near future, that I have that faith and trust in the the whole brand from a quality perspective as well. So it's really nice to work in a place that you believe strongly and that their values align with yours. It's really important to me. 
Yeah, and especially if you're standing in front of people and looking them in the eye and saying, these guys do this thing really well, you really need to believe it. Oh, absolutely. And especially veterinarians, we can be a cynical bunch and uh, a lot of us like evidence-based data or statements. And so it's really nice to be able to, yeah, work for a company that has the the data to back that up and the, the R&D happening and, and the board-certified nutritionists that are conducting the feeding trials and all that kind of stuff. So it's nice to work for a science-based company for sure. You've already touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job? And maybe also if you could talk about being a clinical veterinarian as well, that could be good. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people are sort of surprised that a lot of the skills that are required to be a successful clinical veterinarian are not necessarily ones that you would learn at uni, so to speak. I believe that there is a heavier focus on building non-clinical skills at university in order to make the newer generation of veterinarians more have more solid foundations in their science communication skills. But the number one skill I need to do either clinical or industry job is my interpersonal skills. People think that vets are just treating pets, but a lot of it is like so much of it is around people and it's working within a team. It's teamwork. It's informing and educating owners. So there's that communication thing. And then it's the exact same in my new role. I work in a team. I'm always collaborating. And I'm informing and educating my colleagues and external stakeholders. So that's probably one of the number one job skills that I need to do either job, more so than how I hold my scalpel or whether or not I can diagnose ABC disease. Relatability is another one as well. So it's not just about being a good communicator, but it's about being able to read what the pet owner isn't telling you or just, you know, having empathy for what they might have been dealing with before they walk through the door. Something that a lot of people don't know is that a lot of veterinarians, they have a really difficult job. They not only are they dealing with sick pets and no one wants a pet to suffer, but vets are dealing with people with high emotions. A lot of clients may um, say things that they wouldn't necessarily say to another person or they may, you know, they may be aggressive or abusive towards their veterinary team. Some some people use emotional blackmail, and you know, the the discussion of money is is incredibly inflammatory. And believe me when I say many vets just hate talking about money because it's one of the most abhorrent ideas to them that we would put a price on your pet's health. We absolutely hate doing that. And I think in sometimes I think sometimes that's what might get us in trouble a little bit is our avoidance of that conversation and that can land people in hot water. But it's about you know understanding from the vet side of the table that people people have emotions and sometimes they aren't the best at regulating them and it can really wear you down. But one of the skills that I really built up. Um, throughout my vet career and it was through a lot of guidance from a psychologist and psychiatrist so I did a lot of educating me about myself in my own time one of the things that really worked best for me was yeah generating that sense of empathy and go well perhaps if I'd had the day this person had I may behave in the same way and it's not about excusing um, antisocial behavior or anything like that but Perhaps when people, you know, were start, they start to get a bit agitated and things like that to just probe a little further and, and be really open. And so having that 
personal personal skill to dig a little deeper and get people to open up and and providing that safe space for them because there's so much emotion in pet ownership that being able to yeah being able to have some skill around emotions and diffusion of escalated emotion can be the difference between whether or not you um, have a good day or you have a not so good day and then that can add up day after day. So it sounds like compassion is quite a key skill like not just towards the animal but also towards the owners. Absolutely I think people become vets because they have compassion for animals any vet will tell you that their salary is not at all generous and whilst we completely sympathize that bills at the clinic can seem really really high we absolutely assure you that that isn't going into the vet's pockets that it's actually the cost of medicine that is so high and we live in this amazing country called Australia that has Medicare and I think in a way that's turned people's radars off a little bit as to how much medical care actually costs because we have so many subsidies thankfully. So when it comes to their pets people have this maybe a bit of a distorted idea of what value should be and they you know they find that really uncomfortable um, or an uncomfortable reality when they're not prepared for that. Yeah. So being able to kind of acknowledge that and, but, you know, work compassionately around that is what I think makes a sustainable clinical vet career. Do you think that's something that a lot of people going into the career are not necessarily thinking about when they're starting out? Yeah, it's something that you get like told multiple times at career days and then throughout uni is, you know, you don't earn a lot, you don't earn a lot, you don't earn a lot. And I don't know about anyone else, but it might be different for the postgraduates now, but I was an undergraduate. I'd gone straight from primary school to high school to uni without a breath and student expenses, uh, you know, it was, it was tough. I did have to put myself through uni. You know, life is very different when you're trying to juggle all sorts of grown-up expenses. Um, There's a lot of studies out there indicating, you know, the financial hardship that a lot of veterinarians experience because they go through university, they rack up a massive university bill, even if they're on HEX. Um, I I didn't earn enough in my first seven years to start paying my HEX off. Believe me when I I reassure everyone that um, we have sympathy for for what that looks like. But, But yeah, it's it's one thing to live it and it's another thing to try and tell a starry-eyed little vet student who just has dreams of being James Herriot um, that what that reality looks like when reality hits. And the attrition rate in the vet industry is just really sad because it takes a lot to get through vet school. It is a mammoth effort just to survive and pass vet school. And there are some superheroes out there that do it with honours. And to think that some of those and a higher than you would think percentage of those vets don't remain vets at the five-year mark. It just seems so sad that they've gone to all that effort, given up and sacrificed so much to be a vet that five years in, when they should just be hitting their stride, they look at what brings them happiness in their life and decide that it's not worth it. And there's actually a shortage of vets. Figuring out how are you going to work sustainably and how you're going to take care of your mental health and that by putting yourself first, you're actually going to be a stronger, more resilient vet. It goes for everything in life, but for some reason, a lot of our industry likes to think that being a vet is like in its own bubble <laughs> and that there's like a special little universe that means that you're immune to stress. Uh, we're not. 
we're human. We, we like to think that we're superheroes and we are in a way to our patients, but yeah, we, we need to be taking better care of ourselves and better care of each other. And that starts before you even get to vet school um, and, you know, establishing those boundaries and saying like, you know, and valuing yourself, valuing yourself as much as you value your patients. Yeah. Figuring out what works for a sustainable career for you, be it part-time or what, whatever. Yeah. And I think that in itself is a skill, like being able to set boundaries, being able to know how far you can push yourself, what recovery looks like and how long it takes. They're all skills that like it's often trial and error that you use to learn those skills. Yeah, yeah. I I think that I just I love the idea that our preschoolers and primary schoolers in some settings are being taught the idea of boundaries and consent and, you know, just valuing one's own you know, sense of self, identity, resilience, all that type of thing, I think is just absolutely wonderful and remarkable. I think that that I cannot wait to see that start to come through in generations to come because, you know, there there are a lot harder things to learn as an adult and they're things that I wish I knew years and years ago um, because it would have saved me a lot of difficult times. I've burned out as a vet three times in 10 years and when we're talking burnout we're talking cannot get out of bed like physically incapable of getting out of bed you know intense depression anxiety even um you know suicidal thoughts and things so it's it's certainly been a journey that has its highs and above all I used to say that I might not become a vet if I knew what it would cost me but I've changed my mind I definitely would become a vet and what it has taught me in life and the person I am today, I just wouldn't change a thing because I've learned so much about myself and how I've gathered all of these skills that I can use to not just help pets, but like help support my dear friends and family. And especially in tough times like now, yeah, I never thought that those skills that I was learning in the consult room would be so relevant today (laughs) outside of the consult room. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. That's that's pretty lovely in its own way. What is your path to getting to where you are now? Like you've you've touched on a lot of it, but did you always know you wanted to be a vet? Yeah, I was one of those three-year-olds that got bitten by a dog for cuddling it when it really didn't want to be cuddled. And I could tell that it was having a tough time. So I wanted to give it a cuddle and it bit me and fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So my poor parents would have a heart attack every time I'd run up to a strange animal on the street, which I was always doing. Um, We had a menagerie of animals growing up. I've had a pet yabby. I've had pet cockatiels, budgies, cats, dogs, pet echidna for about four days. We didn't um, confine it or anything. It just lived under the tank. So we called it our pet. That's Australia for you. And <laughs> so I had a menagerie of pets. I think, oh, I think one of the toughest things about vet school was living on campus for five years and not being able to have a pet. Um, my roommate and I. Kind of ironic. I, I know the irony was I used to go and like visit my friend's that lived off campus just so that I could pet their animals. They think we were friends, but really I was just visiting their pets. No, I'm kidding. They were great. <laughs> it's actually, it's I, again, the irony is too much. It was actually one of my friends from vet school who alerted me to the fact that this industry job was going. And if it weren't for my friendship with her and my knowledge of how much she loved the company that we work for, I probably wouldn't have applied. So those relationships and things that you spend time building at university through college nights and 
cultural tours and things that uni students do. Um, they're really important because that's how you like network and get honest feedback about what a workplace is like before applying for the job. So if you don't have those friendships and relationships that you've built throughout uni, you know, the workforce, you can be on the back foot in a way. So it's really good to have that behind you. And yeah, I think so you know, that, that path was animal mad all the way from primary school to high school. I found, I found high school a lot easier um, because I had this clear goal about what subjects I wanted to do because I had this clear career path. And then I got to university and I'll be honest, I really struggled. I found re university really hard. I had to resit many of my exams and it wasn't just a because I now had to juggle working responsibilities and more grown-up stuff, but I went for many years undiagnosed as ADHD. And it turned out that the structure and everything of high school, I could really thrive in, but then that flexibility and self-directed learning in university while I was undiagnosed was really tough, really, really tough. And, you know, I battled, <laughs> but I made it. And, you know, there's certain things about reset exams that I will never forget. Something like the pre-patent period of a parasite, not just a great alliteration, but also really semi-useless information for a veterinarian that only treats cats and dogs. <laughs> so, you know, there's things that it teaches about you, resilience. There we go. More life skills. But then since since university, I've had the opportunity to attend not just general conferences like our industry Australian Vets Association conference, but more targeted conferences like a behaviour conference um, in Sydney and an internal medicine conference in Hawaii and things like that, that continue to build those skills. And then workshops and kind of day conferences with behaviour specialists and then you learn a lot from case referral too. So I've spent a lot of time on the phone with specialists and consult consultants about tough cases and you're continually learning, continual learning. But as for formal qualifications, I haven't obtained any further formal qualifications since graduating, but I do intend to sit for some soon. So there's a College of Veterinary Surgeons and Scientists in Australia and New Zealand. And you can obtain membership to the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists, or you can obtain fellowship. And fellowship is that specialist path where you do an internship and a residency and then sit a lot of very difficult exams, but the membership is the entry level. So I would, I would, um, I would like to soon, yeah, sit for my additional qualifications in behavioural medicine or feline and/or feline medicine, which will take a couple of years, but that's my intention because I'm obsessed. <laughs> Fantastic, which is probably a good place to start. I just want to say thank you for uh, saying that you have ADHD oh. and that you were struggling with it being undiagnosed. I feel like at the moment you'd be studying in a fairly un unstructured environment as well. How have you like created an environment now that you can thrive within? Well, just being aware of it for starters, I think was one of my biggest coping mechanisms was just knowing one of my one of my strongest coping me mechanisms of ADHD is just knowing that I have it and forgiving myself for you know not finding it easy to start a task or for becoming distracted or for 
hyper-focusing into something for three hours where it really was not that relevant. (laughs) So some of the methods that I use day to day, and I think this is why I thrived in clinical practice for so long, is that my day schedule was handled by somebody else. You know, I was forced to redivert my attention. And in a way that keeps someone with ADHD very happy is that constant change of focus. Um, Every 15 to 30 minutes, it's a new consult or, you know, I get to hyper-focus in surgery and just focus on the thing until it's done. So they were things that I think really maybe do well in clinical practice. But then in industry, I did find that hard to switch because I've got a blank calendar and my days to myself and I've got all these tasks that can seem very overwhelming because they're on a much larger scale. It's not a small amount of tasks that I can tick off, done, tick off, done. And that's obviously the thing that people with ADHD can find really difficult to do is seeing the pathway to getting a task done. So that's why bigger projects can seem impossible. So one of my best coping mechanisms is blocking out my calendar in advance. And it's not to make myself unavailable for meetings or anything like that. I do leave gaps and things like this, but trying to kind of have a bit of a task list, a rolling task list going. And at the end of the week, whatever I haven't managed to achieve or what's ongoing, I just book out a little bit of time in advance. Say I would block out about half of my calendar the week going forward. That's sort of like one of the last things I'll do on a Friday. And that makes me feel a lot better about not completing tasks is it's okay. I'm going to keep working on it next week in this time and this time and this time. Often I won't actually stick to that, (laughs) but the time's there and it's flexible. I can move it around and I can see, you know, how long I'm spending on a task or I might get hyper-focused into a task and then a calendar reminder pops up and it's like, oh, you're supposed to be working on this now and it can just snap me out of it. The other thing I've found just so invaluable is Pomodoro style attention training. 25 minutes of work followed by a five minute break and you do about four rounds of that before you have a longer break. And I was concerned that with a distraction every five minutes that I would struggle to return to work and it would actually make me less efficient. But as someone with ADHD, I was the most surprised of all to find that that may be the most efficient I've ever been and also the least tired I've ever been because I'm giving myself that permission to look away and go stretch. And it's actually good for my physical health as well. Um, Step away from the computer. (laughs) My hip injury has thanked me for it every 25 minutes or so. And when I stick to that, my days, I I finish my workday so much more refreshed and able to go off and do other things. I use an app called Focus Keeper on my work phone and it's the best thing I've ever done all year. So I'd highly recommend it. Fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. What's some advice that you'd give to a young person who's considering a career in the veterinary world? Because I imagine there's a few of them. A lot of people want to become veterinarians and a lot of people sacrifice so much to become veterinarians. My biggest advice would be to know your worth. Don't get so caught up in the sacrifice because it's a bit of a culture thing as well. And I know that it's not so different in the human medical world as well that, you know, we had to sacrifice so much in order to get where we are that you should too. And that's not always the healthiest way to approach things. So know your worth, know where your boundaries are and practice that as soon as you can. And yeah, I think if you can take a gap year, I think that's one of the the biggest things I think would have really developed me socially, would have shaken out a few cobwebs before I got to uni. I think I would have had quite a a different path in terms of challenges that probably could have been avoided. Again, 
no regrets, but there were some things that were probably more difficult than what they needed to be. And I felt that if I had have taken a gap year and gotten to know myself a bit better, that I might have find, found my time at, at uni and the journey in my career just a little bit easier, a little bit sooner. But again, no regrets. So that's my advice. That's awesome. You're the first person as well to suggest a gap year. And I like I was really privileged and I got to have one. I got to do some really awesome stuff and yeah, made, made the world of difference. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as like a, a benefit of privilege. I think that I would have been better off financially too if I had have taken a gap year and, and worked you know, for part of it, just in, you know, a basic job. Um, I've been working every summer really hard leading up to uni and then throughout uni. And because it was just for the summer, my good old super just kept getting swallowed up in fees. So anything I'd worked hard to accumulate throughout the summer had just gone by the time the next year rolled around. But yeah, had I taken a year to work and then use hopefully some of those earnings to travel or whatever the case may be, I would have had the space and the time and less pressure just to get to know myself. And I, I don't know about you, Amelia, but when I came through, there was a lot of pressure from the generations before us not to take gap years as they were seen as lazy or they were seen as, you know, airy-fairy and you might change your mind and how bad that would be if you changed your mind about going to uni. And that's the one thing I love about what where my husband's path has led him. He's in IT. He never went to uni. He did a TAFE course, you know, he didn't, he didn't subscribe to that. You must go to uni in order to have a happy life. And he's now, you know, some of the top in his field. And I just think that there are so many paths that you can use university to get you to, but that's not always, that's not always the way to happiness. So it's about making sure that what you're doing is going to make you happy above all. And I think that's what a gap year can really give us. I think a gap year also sort of can help introduce you to the world outside of school because school is a very structured, very unique kind of environment that isn't then reflected again later in life. And if you have practice working in different environments, working with different people, yeah, it can really help you further along. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that's definitely some sage advice from two wizened old women who went to nerd camp together <laughs> in 2006 good old canberra yeah long time ago once again we have a, have another nysf on the show women in stem and nysf those, those two yeah it. it's a it's a thing no i had a guest earlier who he was like oh like one of the key career things that happened to me is i went to this science camp i don't know if you've heard about it and i was like i think i know what's coming <laughs> mic drop what's something you wish the general public understood about your job basically I think a lot of people have perceptions about what it's like to be a vet and I don't think we're the only industry that have a lot of misconceptions from the external public about what it's really like to do our job but given that the the rate of suicide in veterinarians is about four times that of the general population I think that it would be helpful for both vets and the public if we could talk a lot more about what it's really like to be a veterinarian and to not make presumptions and just to open up that conversation about what really goes on during a vet's day. And it's not 
all doom and gloom. There are some absolutely wonderful, fantastic things about being a clinical vet that I just don't get any more out of, you know, when I'm in industry. You know, for example, a pet's been unwell for quite some time and I'm able to diagnose and then help make them better and just to see them walk through that next consult like a completely well and changed pet. Like that's the only industry you get to do that and have that effect and bond with the owners over that. It's absolutely magical. But on the flip side, you know, we there's there's a lot of conflict that occurs in a veterinary clinic, not just between teams because conflict can be normal in teams, but a lot of unnecessary conflict between vets and owners. And that often stems around money and expectations. And I think if we could all manage our expectations around conflict and or, you know, cost of care or what we expect in a day with a vet, that we could help shine a light on what being a vet's really like before vets go to all the effort and sacrifice in order to train in that profession and then become disillusioned. And that disillusionment and that breaking of the values or that feeling of internal conflict is what leads vets down a dark path. It's when your workplace and your actions conflict directly with your own internal values, that's compassion fatigue. And I think that the pressure that some pet owners place on veterinarians is unfair and some pressure that veterinarians place on themselves is unfair. So if we can alleviate some of that burden, then I think that we could save a lot more veterinarians about um, going down a dark path. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that it's, you know, it's a sad thing to have to say goodbye to a pet, but that's actually not the worst part about a vet's job. You know, we hate the, the conflict with owners. We really, we're there for your pet. We're there for you. We just want you to understand. And maybe sometimes we don't go about communicating that the right way, but sometimes too, like we need people to be ready to listen as well. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a mixture of it'd be great if the general public was listening, but also if both sides can communicate quite well too. Yeah. And I think too, like vets really do place a completely unreasonable burden of responsibility upon themselves as well. And I think that that's a little bit of a culture thing that I'd really love to see shift a little bit. Like vets are terrible with boundaries often. You know, they care so much that they put their absolute heart and soul and everything into their working day and they have nothing left in the tank for themselves and everyone needs something left in the tank for themselves. And it's a, it's a skill and it's a culture that I think would be really nice to see change so that vets felt that it was okay to when the time of their shift ends to say, okay, I'm leaving now and not feel guilty that there's so much left to do because they need to value themselves. If they don't start saying no to, you know, staying overtime all the time, then they're going to end up being forced to call in sick because they just can't cope anymore. And so, you know, in a way they're doing it for the team, which, you know, is not always the observation when vets sort of enforce their boundaries. Yeah, I imagine that's a massive cultural culture shift that could be quite challenging. Yeah, but I built, I reckon we can do it. I do. I, I've i had the absolute um, privilege of working with some very recently graduated veterinarians and it just really brought me so much joy and hope to see how much negotiating they were capable of, how much value they placed on their role in the clinic, you know, how much they were willing to demand in their working contracts and not demand as in they were being unreasonable, just demand for what they deserve. And it was really nice to see this young person 
really know their worth. And that then translated in how they communicated with pet owners and they were really good at just communicating the value and it wasn't, yeah, there, there was just a lot less conflict and, and it was just really nice to, to witness. So I reckon it can happen, but we definitely need to be, yeah, just talking about it more and shine a bit more of a light on, on all of it. But I think that um, I think that's something that I, I hope that you're probably segueing into asking me about was the shout out, which you want to wrap up with a shout out. That'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> which is something that um, Dr. Nadine Hamilton is striving to do through her charity, Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. Um, Nadine's a psychologist and she has started the Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet charity because she has a personal story alongside you know knowing people who have committed suicide and the vet industry and yeah she's that was her charter was to minimize the the mental anguish of veterinarians and so she does absolutely wonderful work and you can find her charity love your pet love your vet on facebook and um she would really love for a shout out and if you have some spare change because it is a charity and she does fund it all entirely herself and have to try and work full time. So um, if anyone can spare a dollar for the Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet charity, she does incredible work and that would just really free up her time to be able to do even more things with veterinarians. Yeah, help keep them safe. That's so awesome to hear that that exists. So cool. It's, it's such an amazing charity and she's a really incredible person and publicity and PR and all of that it can cost a lot of money so there's this you know incredible charity and it was actually um you know in conjunction with her contacts that my company was able to assist and help coordinate through with other companies other large companies to coordinate mental health support for veterinarians who were affected by the bushfires and not just veterinarians, but veterinary staff, nurses, um, volunteers, uh, wildlife carers. So people who had been treating animals during the bushfires, it was in part our contacts with Nadine and her knowledge of the Psycho Psychologists Association that we were then able to coordinate with other companies to help donate funds to set that up and provide free um, support for the animal workers who were directly affected by the bushfires so that's just one one little thing that Nadine Dr Nadine's been able to help improve the lives and mental well-being of veterinarians and if she had more resources behind her she's got such amazing ideas and her message needs to be heard loud and clear <laughs> we've done a, um, a well-being series with her over the course of four episodes earlier this year and that has been shared worldwide we've had other markets from our company ask for copies of the webinar series and they're translating it into arabic into um, russian into many other languages which is just absolutely remarkable that those vets are getting to hear what she has to say because what she had to say was just, yeah, what vets needed to hear. That's so fantastic. Sorry, you can tell I get a, I get very passionate talking about what, what it is that she does because I've had such an intense journey myself and there's so much that I've learned along the way that I just want to broadcast to other vets. But obviously Nadine is more qualified. 
<laughs> than I to do that. And um, she's so uniquely poised within the industry to spread the word. That's wonderful. It kind of sounds like there's a potential that the industry is sort of heading towards a tipping point of positive change. So it's not all doom and gloom at all. It isn't. No, not at all. Not at all. It isn't. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh, I don't think so. Um, I'd like to probably give a shout out to Louie and Mittens, who once we did start recording for real, they did, um, <laughs> they've gone and found some cosy place in the house to curl up and be quiet and let me concentrate, which, you know, mummy has ADHD, so they know how hard that can be sometimes. So <laughs> they've, they've, they've been very good children in the last hour. <laughs> Uh, make sure you give them a high five at the end of this as well too. Oh, Mittens knows how to high five. She will do that for anything, any type of food-related situation. Louis, he's like a teenage boy, so if I just give him a little head nod, that's his props and he will be so happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> like we said earlier, they're individuals. you got to treat them as such. Yeah. The more I stay away from Louis, the more he likes me. So, you know, it's it's all it's all to circle back to get getting that little bit more affection I gotta gotta rein it in or I'm too intense for him <laughs> luckily I've got mittens that I can just pour all my love onto and she she's she's just she's happy about that <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for joining us Chantel it has been really really interesting incredibly educational I hope our listeners have found it the same as well oh thanks Amelia thank you so much for having me and thank you too for promoting women in STEM I think that there's a lot of roles that people should absolutely know more about. And I'm glad that veterinary has made it on the list, but I can't wait to see what else you we ha- we get to see come, on, come along. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. I know we discussed some possibly challenging mental health topics throughout this episode, and I just wanted to do the kind of standard media reminder at the end of this episode that if you're having a bad day, if you're having a bad week, bad year, bad time, just please do reach out to someone. In Australia, we've got services like Beyond Blue and Lifeline. Please do reach out to them. You might find that through your workplace or through your partners or children's or parents workplace you might be able to access the employee assistance program which often means you can have free counseling and always don't forget there's things like all sorts of apps like smiling mind there's headspace there's a whole lot of different options available so i'll include some links in the show notes as usual but please don't struggle silently have a chat to someone make sure you reach out and if you're someone who thinks you know someone who's having a bad day please reach out to them as well Um, because you never know what kind of difference you can make. Thanks so much. Take care of yourselves and I hope you enjoyed this episode.